Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to, to John. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 4 as we're continuing our series through the, the book of John. Don't forget a um, couple of announcements. Don't forget next week to turn back your clocks as daylight saving time ends. And then also don't forget uh, the Thanksgiving baskets that are due um, November uh, 14th. But, let, but let's get into, into the Word. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 1. And so in, in our series through the Gospel of John, John is showing us that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. And the way he shows us it is by showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and how Jesus received glory from the Father. And the reason why he wants to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, is because he wants to invite us in to believe so that we can have life in his name. Now, last week, uh, John showed us how Jesus surpasses that of John the Baptist in any baptism or any ritual purification that John the Baptist might have represented. And so the cry of John the Baptist's life was, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so that phrase, he must increase, but I must decrease, really should be the cry of every disciple. It should be the anthem of our lives. And so John shows us like the reason why Jesus can increase and the reason why we can decrease is because he is greater. And so last week in the passage, he was telling us that the reason why Jesus is greater than us is because he comes from above and he has authority overall. Like he doesn't just speak from theory, but rather he speaks from observation, from what he's seen and from what he's heard because he comes from the throne room of God and that Jesus was sent by God the Father and the very words that he is speaking is the very word of God and that the Father loves the Son and caused them to have complete authority over everything and to execute his will and his purpose. And so as we get into chapter 4, we meet a woman from Samaria now, I think what John is trying to do is John is trying to give us a distinction between Nicodemus, who we've already met in chapter 3, and the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. Nicodemus, who we discovered was a learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, and theological trained man. This woman, as we're going to find out, is a Samaritan woman who's unschooled, without influence, and is despised in her community. Nicodemus was a Jewish man, and he was a ruler in his community. The Samaritan woman was a woman and a moral outcast. And yet both of them need Jesus. And so what we're going to learn is whether you're rich or poor, whether you're young or old, whether you're prestigious or an outcast, there's only one answer for the aching of our soul, and that is Jesus. He's the one we need. He is the one that we're looking for. He is the answer to the brokenness of our sin and, and of our shame. And so no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, he is the only one that will satisfy, for he is the one that offers us living water. And this is what we're going to learn in our text. So let's look at John chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, 
he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. So let's talk about this. So the message of Jesus and really his ministry is beginning to spread. Remember how the Jews, the Pharisees, the religious leaders came to investigate John the Baptist's ministry by trying to find out, like, what authority does this guy have? Like, on what authority is he basing his ministry off now? Word is spreading, and now they're slowly but surely drawing their attention to Jesus in his ministry. And even though there were many people baptizing in the Judean area, what kind of too, what drew attention was really the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus and, and their authority and their specific message as they were baptizing people. And because fearful there, there might be an attempt to polarize these two ministries, Jesus determined to kind of minimize the potential damage, decided to move from Judea out into the Galilee area. And so Jesus goes to Samaria to a town called Sychar. Now, if you're a first century reader, you would kind of understand uh, the significance of this because there's great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Jews reviewed the Samaritans as outcasts, sellouts, and half-breeds, and there was racism and deep prejudice that ran deep from both sides. And really throughout the story, we're going to kind of see this animosity between how this woman reacts and responds to Jesus, who is a Jewish man. But Jesus finds himself in the middle of the town, tired, exhausted, in the heat of the day, sitting next to a well where his disciples went into town to purchase food. And as he's at this well, a woman comes in the middle of the day. Let's look at verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into a town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So, so, so let's stop right here. So apparently this woman all by herself is coming to the well. Now, normally, women in that day would kind of come into groups when they gather water, and they would do it either first thing in the morning or late in the evening to avoid the scorching heat. And what we find out and what John is telling us that this woman came all by herself to draw water in the middle of the day. Now, he doesn't tell us why, but later on in the story, we can assume a couple of things. Perhaps it's to escape the scornful looks of the other women who came to draw with her. Maybe there's public shame. Maybe she lives in isolation and chooses to live in isolation because of all the things that have happened to her or that has happened in her life. 
and Jesus breaks the normal social convention, and he asks this woman for a drink. Now, the reason why we know he breaks normal social convention is because look at verse 9. Look at how shocked this woman is to what Jesus is saying. She's saying this, how is it that you, a Jew, is asking for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then John, even in his commentary, say, because Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. You see, Jews believe that just by, by associating with a Samaritan will not only defile you, but also will make you unclean. And this Samaritan knew this. This is why she was so kind of dumbfounded by the fact that this strange Jewish man would ask her for a drink. Because by asking her for a drink, associating with her, that would make him unclean. But what she does not understand is who is the one who's asking for her drink. Because Jesus does not become defiled by what is unclean, but rather everything that Jesus touches becomes clean. Everything that Jesus touches, he sanctifies. When you would touch a leper, you will become unclean. But when Jesus touches a leper, what happens? He heals the leper. He cleanses the leper. And so not only does Jesus break social and religious convention in this day, But now he also is offering her this living water, something she knows nothing about. All she sees is this strange, tired Jewish traveler in need of water. She does not perceive his glory yet. Because if she did, she would have already taken this living water. And so the question we've got to ask ourselves is like, what does Jesus mean by this living water in verse 10. I I think on, on one level, this living water can actually mean fresh, living water from a healthy spring. And on the other level, it can also mean so much more. And what we discovered already in our study of the Gospel of John is when you're trying to figure out what does this word actually mean, does it is it a metaphor? We said, where do you go to to find the answers? You go to the Old Testament, because maybe in the Old Testament that phrase is used and where we can kind of discover what does Jesus mean by it. Now, obviously, we don't have enough time to go through all of the verses, but there is this phrase of living water found in the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, God declares this, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. So in a sense, what Jeremiah is saying is they've rejected the fresh running supply of God and His faithful goodness, choosing instead the stagnant waters that they prepared for themselves, only to discover that the water that they prepared for themselves does not satisfy in the containers that they're trying to carry this water is cracked. In other words, they're still unsatisfied in life. The prophets even looked forward to a time in Zechariah 14 verse 8, that day that living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half of it towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea in summer and winter alike. 
And so everywhere this metaphor of living water is used in the Old Testament, it in a sense speaks of God, His grace, or the knowledge of God, or the life we have with God, or the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, the cleansing of what God has done in our lives. And so I think we can come up with a kind of good definition, like what does Jesus mean by living water? And so if you're taking notes, it is this. The living water that Jesus was talking about is the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit that only Jesus can provide. It's the satisfying eternal life mediated by the Spirit. And this can only be found in Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah and the Savior. Only He can provide it. And because of this double meaning of living water, it could mean fresh water from a healthy spring, or it can mean the eternal, the satisfying eternal life that only Jesus can provide. Obviously, this woman finds it easy to think that Jesus is talking about fresh running water, like the water that comes from a spring, from this well. But she looks at Jesus and she says, well, you have no means to, to get this water that you're offering. Are you greater than our father Jacob who actually had to dig this well, who actually had to provide means to get the water out of this well? And so if Jesus was offering this fresh water and yet without using any energy to dig the well or use any means to raise the water out of the well, either he is far greater than Jacob who actually had to dig the well and use means to get water out of the well or he is a fraud. And so this woman really had little doubt that he was greater than Jacob. But her misunderstanding And really, the irony makes her wrong twice. See, the living water that Jesus offers does not come from an ordinary well. And in fact, Jesus is far greater than Jacob. And so this woman's question is is skeptical and perhaps slightly insulting. And look at how Jesus responds to this insulting question. Verse 13, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him uh, for eternal life. Verse 15 says, Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. And so what Jesus is answering, Jesus answers as, as, as a great as Jacob was, the water that he provides, the water that Jacob provides only satisfies for a little bit. But the water that Jesus provides satisfies forever. And, and this thirst is not for natural water, but this is a thirst for God, the eternal life and the presence of God. And this thirst is not met by simply removing this thirst, but rather satisfying it and fulfilling it. 
This is what he means by this water will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. And this is what we have to understand. Jesus does not fulfill every desire by just simply removing it. He fulfills it completely. And it becomes like a well that just constantly overflows, that constantly satisfies. And again, what what Jesus is talking about echoes throughout the Old Testament and the promises. Isaiah 12, verse 3, In the day of God's salvation, with joy God's people will joyfully draw water from this spring of salvation. Isaiah 49, 10, the people will neither hunger nor thirst. Isaiah 44, verse 3, the pouring out of God's Spirit will be like the pouring water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your descendants and my blessings on your offspring. So this water that that, that Jesus offers, this water that Jesus promises is this eternal, satisfying life. And it doesn't remove the aching of our souls. It doesn't remove the thirst and the desire that he has placed inside of us, but rather it fully fulfills and fully satisfies. And this woman, just like Nicodemus, think that Jesus is talking about the naturalistic side of things. Because if this man is greater than Jacob, there's a chance that she no longer has to go to the well anymore. Because every time she would go to the well, she's reminded of her guilt, her shame. She's reminded of her isolation. She's reminded of all the scorn looks she has faced throughout her life. And by simply removing that problem and removing that obstacle, her life will be better. And she says, I want it. If it would make my life easier, if it would remove the problems in my life, I want it. But again, here's what we have to understand. What Jesus is offering is not the removal of problems. It's not the removal of this, this desire. It's not the removal of this thirst that we're longing for, this aching in our souls. What Jesus is offering is rather the fulfilling, the satisfying of it. And what this woman wants is just simply the removal of her problems. But what Jesus is offering her is so much greater than that. And look at what what, what Jesus does in verse 16. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You've correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Now, it almost seems like in verse 16 that kind of like the change in conversation and direction is kind of, in a sense, abrupt, where Jesus now confronts her sin. It seems abrupt, it seems strange, but it's really not if you're really seeing what's going on. 
because this Samaritan woman has already failed. She's failed to grasp who Jesus is. She failed to understand really this nature of this water that Jesus is promising. But what Jesus really is doing in verse 16, he's trying to help her to understand the need for this water that he is offering her. Remember, this water is not to remove problems in her life but rather is to deal with her brokenness, to satisfy her longing for where she is in life. She thought this water that Jesus would offer would just take her problems away, but rather the water that Jesus is offering is actually going to deal with her problem. And what Jesus is doing by saying, hey, go call your husband, he's not getting into her personal matter just to judge her, but rather he's going into the deepest, darkest place that she finds herself and wanting to show her how that water provides and why she has a desperate need for this water. In a sense, Jesus brings out her greatest sin, her greatest hopelessness, her guilt, her despair, and her need. And for us, maybe if you've read the story for the first time, it kind of seems shocking. But in a sense, it shouldn't, because what does John the Baptist call Jesus? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It shouldn't be surprising that the Lamb of God exposes our sin and calls us out on our sin, not to judge us, because what is His role? He's coming to remove it. He's coming to provide living water that satisfies, that deals with our brokenness and our hopelessness and our desperate guilt of, of guilt and shame and despair. And the woman says, I have no husband. And even though that was true, obviously she didn't want to go into any more detail. So she kind of pushes Jesus off in a sense, I have no husband. A.K.A., let's just leave it at that. But what does Jesus do? Jesus digs in a little deeper. He unpacks the whole truth in the most gentlest way. He commends her for a truthfulness. But then he also points out, you have five other husbands. And the one you're sleeping with, the one you're living with right now is not your husband. Now, we're not given any details about this woman's life. Was her shame and all of her divorces because of her husbands and what they did to her? Or was she responsible for some of these things? We, we don't know. We don't know what happened. But we do know that Jesus knew exactly what happened. In a sense, Jesus saw her pain. He saw her brokenness. Then declared that there is a solution. It's in this living water that I'm offering you. Look at verse 19 again. It's, she said, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. 
And so this sudden change of, 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 of the subject kind of prompts many people to think, you know what, she's just trying to distract from her actual problems. And maybe that's the case. Maybe all she's trying to do is, to, to, is change the conversation. She doesn't want to talk about her failures in life. Let, let's just move on. Let's talk about religious things. However, it could also possibly be that she could have discovered that there's something special about this strange man. This Jewish man that is breaking all kind of social protocols, in a sense declaring that he's better than Jacob by offering this living water without kind of investing any energy in digging the well, without providing any means to get the water out of it. There's something special about this Jewish man who's never met this woman and are able to call her out on her own sins. And so maybe she saw that Jesus was a prophet and maybe she saw in a sense, she's like, well, let me test him to see if he's a true prophet to kind of talk about the greatest theological implications of the debate that we wrestle with today. Where should we truly worship God? We don't know. But look at how Jesus responds, and this is why I don't think she was trying to distract, because Jesus, if she was trying to distract, I guarantee you Jesus would have said, you know what, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about your issues here. But he doesn't. Look at verse 21. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Man, that's a pretty exhaustive answer to a distracting question. Or was it because she really perceived that this might be the Messiah? And if he was, then he would offer a solution to this problem of their day. And so Jesus responds to this woman kind of in two parts. The, the first part, he announces really the appending obsoleteness of both sides. Like, look at, look at verse 21 again. He says, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, really what, what he is saying, there is little to gain nothing from this prolonged conversation of which site we should worship God. Because the time has come where those sites don't matter anymore. We've already seen what Jesus talked about in chapter, um, in chapter 2 about the temple. What happens to the temple? It's going away. Who is going to be the new temple? It's Jesus. So in a sense, he's, he's saying the same thing, like the location doesn't matter anymore. Because a time is coming where those things are going to be ab absolute. Obsolete. The second part he brings up as he points her to a greater truth. Look at, look at verse 23. He says, But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I love what D.A. Carson says about this. He says, The God who is spirit must be worshipped only in spirit and in truth. It's essentially God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit and in personal knowledge of God and conformity to God's Word made flesh, the one who is God's truth. The worshipers whom God seek worship Him out of the fullness of the supernatural life they enjoy and on the basis of Christ Himself through whom God's person and will are finally and ultimately disclosed. These two characteristics form one matrix. In other words, what Carson is saying is that when these true worshipers are worshiping God, first of all, it's God-centered. Why is it God-centered? Because it's enabled by the gift of the Holy Spirit, through the knowledge that's been revealed to us in the Word that became flesh. And this knowledge is not just a head knowledge, but it's also a conforming of who we are as a person. And you can't separate spirit from truth. They form one matrix. Now, for many of us as we read the passage... I don't think a lot of us with confidence can say, man, I completely get that. That makes complete sense. We're like, yeah, maybe. Now you can think how maybe this Samaritan woman feels. How much she actually understood about what Jesus is talking about? Kind of debatable. We don't know what, how much she understood. But again, as she was talking to Jesus... There's something inside of her that is saying something special about this guy. She starts off with calling him a prophet. But then after this prophet gives her such a profound response, which she probably didn't understand the whole gist of it, just like we don't. We understand some of it, but not the whole gist of it. She says something even more profound. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So in a sense, this strange man that she's been talking to about spiritual and theological matters, the one she in the beginning calls a prophet, the one who kind of speaks with so much authority as, she deal, as he deals with her deepest-rooted sin. There's almost in the back of her mind, this could be the Messiah. And I really think in her statement, she's almost like leaving it open. Are you the Messiah? And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes that invitation and look at verse 26. Jesus told her, 
I, the one speaking to you, am he. The one who sits by the well and asks her for a drink is none other than the promised Messiah. The one who offered her living water and who could offer her living water because he was the promised Messiah. And even though on her own she would have never met the promised Messiah, the promised Messiah met her where she was in life. And her life will be changed forever. We need to stop here. Next week we're going to talk about that life transformation, but I think there's some application here. This invitation that Jesus offers to this woman, this invitation of living water, is an invitation that goes out to all of us. Because all of us are like this woman. We're trying to find satisfaction in life. And we chase after these things because there's something inside of us that's missing. There's a yearning, there's a thirst, there's a longing that cannot be satisfied, that cannot be quenched, that cannot be fulfilled. And we chase after these things thinking that they would be fulfilled and we always find ourselves disappointed. And we use phrases like this, if I can only achieve this, if I can only get in this state of life, if I can only get this kind of job, if I can only just make it through college, if I can only just get married, if I can only just have kids, if I can just only have grandbabies, if I can only just reach retirement, there's always something next. And what we come to find out is all these things that we were chasing after, all these things that we were holding out for, make us happy for a little bit. But the longing in our hearts, the longing in our souls is still there. And I think the first thing that we can learn from Jesus in his conversation and his invitation to living water, if you're taking notes, is that Jesus is the only one that truly satisfies He's the only one that truly satisfies. He's the one that can satisfy this thirst of ours and our hearts. And he doesn't satisfy it by removing that thirst. He satisfies it by fulfilling it. Like that longing in your heart, that longing in your soul of wanting to be filled and satisfied, where do you think that comes from? think you're the only one with it? No, that comes from God. He doesn't satisfy you by just simply taking that longing out. No, He's placed that longing inside of you. And He satisfies you by fulfilling that longing. See, the water of this world will always leave us empty. And this is why we need living water. And this living water can only be found in Jesus. Second thing I think we can learn is this, that apart from Jesus, we're all just broken cisterns trying to hold water. In other words, we're these, we're these containers full of cracks. And just when we think we are fully satisfied and fulfilled, where does the water go? It runs out. Why? Because we're broken cisterns 
We're filled with cracks. We're searching anywhere for satisfaction. We're seeking lives of self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction, but the water runs out right as the glass is filled because it's filled with cracks. But Jesus offers a better way. In faith, he, he calls us to drink of this living water that he extends to us. He calls us to himself. He calls us to find rest in him and to come to him. For he is the only one that can satisfy us. So I think a question for all of us to reflect as you look at your life. Like what are you chasing after that you think that will satisfy you? Like when you look at your life, you kind of inspect what's going on in your heart. Like are you satisfied? Are you fulfilled? What are you chasing after thinking that would satisfy you? And Jesus is inviting you. He says, come. Find satisfaction in me. Come. Here's this living water. When you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. Not because you'll never be thirsty again but because you'll always be satisfied. Let me pray for us as we get to sit at the table. Our Holy Father, Lord, you know our hearts. You know for the things we long for. You know for the things that we're chasing after. You know, for the things that we're trying to find satisfaction in. Lord, I am so grateful that you have come to meet us where we are in life. And you offer us this living water. Not because we've asked for it. Not because <laughs> we deserve it. Not because we think we even need it. Because for many of us, we don't even think we need it. Just like this woman. She thought she knew what she needed, but she had no idea. And yet you offered it to her anyway. And in a moment with you, her life will be forever changed. And so, Lord, you know where we are in life. You know who's sitting in this room. You know what they're thinking, how they're feeling. You know how, how overwhelmed some of them are. You know the false hope that they're putting in things, the disappointment they're dealing with. So, Lord, can you meet them where they are? Can you give them the faith to receive this living water, to come and taste and see that the Lord is good? as we get ready to sit at the table. This table is an invitation. It is a reminder for us of who Christ is and what he's done. How he comes and how he satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. 
how he paid for our sins in full. How he gives us life because he's redeemed us and reconciled us. And when we find ourselves tired and weary, we find ourselves unsatisfied, we, we come to the table. And by eating the body and drinking the blood, we're reminded of the cross. For that is what our hope is in. For when life is uncertain, that is where we stand. As we look to Him, as we find satisfaction in Him, as we rest in Him. And so as we distribute these elements, like I want you to meditate like on how Christ can fulfill you. How Christ can satisfy every longing in your heart, the aching in your soul, the area that you feel hopeless in, the brokenness that you're dealing with, the sin and the despair. Meditate on how Christ fulfills it as he died in your place for you on the cross. His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. In our text, we're reminded that Jesus offers this woman living water. Later on, we're going to find out that Jesus is the living water. He is the living bread. Basically, Jesus offers himself to this woman. And he offers himself to us. And so when we come and when we gather as his people, we're reminded of the greatest gift we've been given, God himself. So we can eat and we can drink and remember us of what he's given us. This bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of him. This cup represents the blood of Christ, the new covenant you have in him. Drink it in remembrance of him. Our Holy Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for not just giving us your son, giving us your spirit, giving us yourself, especially when we did not deserve it. When we were enemies, we weren't even looking for it. You made yourself known. And so, Lord, we thank you for your incredible mercy and grace you've lavished upon us. Thank you that you love us Thank you that you satisfy us. Thank you that we can find rest in you and meaning in you because our hope is in you. And you will never disappoint us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us for you are faithful. And you are good. And you are holy. There is none like you. You've always existed. And so, Lord, I pray that in the longings of our hearts, may we look to you. May we quit chasing after the things of this world. Help reorient our eyes and our hearts as we look to you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, let's worship our King.